1: we are notified whenever law enforcement is gonna be on board. The FBI agents had this box and the box was actually in the middle seat in between both of the FBI agents. And I said, hey guys, you know, um, if you wanna have more space for the both of you, you know, you can put the box up here in the overhead bin. And they kind of smiled and they said, oh, no, we purchased the seat for the box. And I was like, man, whatever's in that box must be really important because they purchased a seat for the box itself. It made me even more curious as to what they were transporting. I asked them just kind of like jokingly what was in the box. And they just said, oh, we're not at liberty to tell that but you'll probably see it on the news. So at that moment, I really wanted to know what was in the box.
2: I'm Sayward Darby, and I'm Ariel Ramchandani. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Episode 6, Everything is Lining Up. At the end of the last episode, Detective Brian Matson was in his Jeep Grand Cherokee on his way to an FBI sting. It was in Minneapolis, in July 2018. The plan was to get the stolen ruby slippers back from someone, a middleman, who believed he would be handing over the shoes for cash. Matson wouldn't tell us the exact location of the operation.
3: It was in Minneapolis, uh, downtown area. A large amount of agents there that day. And uh, I'm close by. I'm not going to be right there because I'm fearful they could have looked me up.
4: As you might recall, Matson had been communicating with at least two people who claimed to know where the shoes were. They knew Matson's name and presumably his face. His photograph was right there on his department's website. Law enforcement expected one of the contacts to show up at the sting. So Matson had to be out of sight.
3: They would be able to identify me if they saw me there. You know, I've been in the paper and stuff like that, so it'd be easy to see what I look like.
2: Sometime that morning, the FBI put eyes on one of Matson's contacts, who we've been calling the lawyer. You heard about him in the last episode. The man was making his way through the city, and he was carrying a bag. Agents started tailing him. If the ruby slippers were really in the bag, the lawyer's behavior was pretty cavalier.
3: He had a bag, and he put it on a countertop to go use the bathroom in downtown Minneapolis. And we are like, should we just grab him? No, let's, let's let this play out. You know, we're going to grab him, but we couldn't believe it. He left the slipper sitting on a countertop and went down the hall and used the bathroom.
5: And remember, never let those ruby slippers off your feet
3: for a moment. Who does that, right?
2: What we know about the site of the sting is that it had tables and places to sit. A restaurant, maybe, or a hotel lobby. When the lawyer arrived, two undercover agents were waiting for him. They were posing as an insurance agent and an authenticator. The man seemed to buy the whole setup.
3: You know, when you're talking about reward monies, whether it's a check, a money order, cash, it's got to hold up, right, to anyone looking into it. So it was all a ruse, but it was actually real money there that day. sitting across the street and listening real time. We have code words, so we know, okay, the slippers are right there. Okay, they look to be authentic. Okay, move in. Well, we never got to that move-in stage because another opportunity presented himself. I had to do with another bathroom break.
4: Had too much coffee in the morning, the guy.
3: Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I gotta be careful how I say this, but um, the money and the slippers were secured and the contact team made contact.
2: It seems that the scene went down like this. While the lawyer was in the bathroom, the undercover agents took his bag. Inside was a pair of ruby slippers. When the lawyer returned, the agents revealed their identities. They said they were taking the shoes and keeping the reward money.
3: I remember the agents I was sitting with, they looked at me like, hey, you excited? I'm like, you know, I've, I've, I've been in this spot before. Once I put my eyes in them and they're authentic, I'll be excited. But I've been here before. You know, I've seen lots of replicas, and I've seen the, you know, as my wife said, the stripper shoes. So, I mean, I'm happy this operation looks to be a success, but I, I need to see them to know for sure.
2: Matson wanted to see the slippers up close, but he couldn't yet, because the FBI was questioning the lawyer.
3: Yeah, the guy stayed for a couple of hours getting interviewed, which I thought was strange. If I was a criminal, I wouldn't stay there for two hours. I not If I'm not under arrest, I'm leaving. You know. He knew he could be in trouble, but he thought he had a loophole around it type type situation, or that he wasn't really culpable. He was just trying to assist, which is garbage. He knew exactly what he's doing.
2: In their communications over the previous year, Matson's contacts had said they would tell him who stole the ruby slippers but only after the shoes had been returned, and they'd gotten their money. The lawyer, of course, didn't get a dime in the sting. But he spilled the beans to the FBI anyway.
3: Oh, he told us who stole them. Almost right off the bat.
2: After more than a decade of people speculating about the identity of the thief, the person the lawyer named was a man already known to Minnesota law enforcement. For multiple reasons. But from an investigative standpoint, there was a problem.
3: You know, the guy's dead now, so you can't interview him. You know. It's a pretty easy scapegoat, right? The person responsible's dead, I mean.
2: <laughs> the lawyer wasn't placed under arrest. When he was leaving the site of the sting, he spotted Matson.
3: The bad guy Uh, did see my face, stopped, said, you probably want to get a good lawyer.
2: (laughs) Matson was confused by the comment. Why would he need a good lawyer? If anyone did, it seemed like the guy who'd showed up with the slippers. The statute of limitations on the theft had run out, but it was still possible other charges could be brought in the case. The fact that Matson's contacts had demanded reward money That could amount to extortion.
4: When the sting was over, Matson called Bob Stein, the detective who'd handed him the case two years prior. Here's Stein.
6: And I remember the day when Brian called me, and he said, we've got the shoes. And I went, yeah, right. You better not be blankety-blank with me. He's like, no, we got him. I could hear it in his voice.
2: Finally, it was time for Matson to see the shoes.
3: I went back to FBI headquarters and I walked in. I'm like, hey, let's see them. And the evidence tech told me, oh, they're already in evidence. I'm like, hey, it's my case, get them out. Oh, I can't do that. And uh, the agent in charge I was working with said, you hurt them, get them out. So they did, they went and got them right away, brought them out, unpackaged them for me. And I got to look at them, you know, I want to make sure they're authentic. I needed to pick them up so I could look at specific things on the slippers that I know need to be a certain way. You know, you put your gloves on and everything like that. And then it was strangely quiet when we opened that package up to look at them. And then it kind of, you know, that overwhelming feeling kind of, I think, hit all of us.
4: Matson snapped a picture of the shoes with his phone, like a trophy shot. The slippers certainly looked real, and the FBI had to treat them like they were. The Bureau's art crime team got involved, a designated squad that works on cases involving stolen paintings, ancient artifacts, and other important cultural property. Here's Agent Jake Archer, who's on the team.
7: The last thing that the FBI wants to do is recover something that we've worked very hard to recover, and then damage it once it's in our possession. It is very difficult for uh, the FBI to go ahead and do this properly, and that's why the art crime team exists.
2: The art crime team prepared special packaging for the slippers, a box that would protect them on their journey. Because they had somewhere to be. The shoes were being flown from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C., At the beginning of the episode, you heard Samantha Taylor, a Delta flight attendant, talking about
4: being on a plane with two FBI agents who had a box on the seat between them.
1: They were actually wearing uh, plain clothes, jeans. They just looked like regular people traveling. I don't know if it was a couple days later or a week later that it did come on the news that Dorothy's ruby slippers had reached the Smithsonian, I believe, for authentication.
2: The FBI brought the box to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The bureau was pretty confident that the slippers in the agent's possession were Michael Shaw's pair, the traveling shoes. But they had to be 100% sure. And there was someone who'd been preparing for years to give them an answer.
8: Selling a little or a lot?
9: I was sitting outside my supervisor's office like in a desk and he's just talking on the phone and I don't eavesdrop but when I hear him say ruby slippers I just sort of like listen a little more and he's talking about like looking at the ruby slippers and taking them off display and so he's like well I'll have to find someone and I think at that moment like I just like stood right up and I like kind of put my arm up and he was on the phone but he was looking at me and laughing. Because I hold the ruby slippers.
4: This is Don Wallace, an object conservator at the Smithsonian, which is home to the People's Shoes, the pair of the ruby slippers that was first sold at the 1970 MGM auction. They were donated to the museum several years later. They were used a lot in the film, so they're the most deteriorated pair. All that tapping and dancing took its toll. In 2016, the museum decided to conserve them, and it launched a Kickstarter campaign called Keep Them Ruby. Don Wallace, who has a deep and abiding interest in plastics and film memorabilia, ended up working on the project for two whole years.
9: I think I spent 200 hours looking at them through a microscope just cleaning the sequins. Um, because it went each sequin by sequin, cleaning them, making sure they were secure by their thread. and. Maybe getting to know the shoes a little too much. But I never got tired of it. And I think even now, if I were to have the shoes and look at them again under a microscope, I would just start seeing new things that I had missed the time before. So I think they always have something to reveal.
2: Wallace knows the ruby slippers better than just about anyone. When the FBI needed an expert to help the Minnesota agents, she was the perfect person.
4: Wallace works in a room in the basement of the museum. There's a huge freight elevator you take to get down there.
9: This is the digital microscope that we use most often. I built kind of special holders just when I was working on the shoes and I made myself a little pillow so I could lay the shoes on it and then move them
4: around. Um, Wallace has several microscopes. One is so powerful, she has to use vibration dampening tables. Everything is incredibly clean and objects are only handled with gloves. This is where the FBI agents brought the slippers for her to examine.
9: They put the box on the table. They open up the cardboard box and inside is another box very well-packed. And you can just see a pair of shoes, like, red sequins. And first glance, you're like, wow, these are, these are ruby slippers. These have the age. These have that wear, the appearance. And you just start getting a little bit of butterflies from it. And I think that's when I start looking at the FBI agents and they're looking at me, I'm like, These, yeah, I mean, these look, these look like it. And so my supervisor and I, we each take a shoe, and we're going between the stereo microscope and the digital microscope, and we're looking at those same pieces of construction. How are the sequins attached? How are the bottom of the shoes painted? And we start seeing everything is lining up. They're made in the same manner, in the same layering system as the shoes in our collection. They're also consistent in the size and everything's kind of going along. And I go to the beads on the bow. And I start looking and all of a sudden I see a bead and it's, instead of all the red glass beads, it's white with like a little bit of red paint on top of it. And it's attached with like a different, like standard cotton thread. And I get really excited, and I kind of step back, and then I look back, and I'm adjusting the magnification. I have one of the FBI agents come over. It's like, do you want to see this? And I show them the shoes. They're like, "Okay." That bead, we have the same on one of our shoes. Like, this has not been publicized. It's not been published. No one knows about this. This is like a unique artifact of when it was repaired during filming, most likely. And there's really isn't any way that people could replicate these. And we called the curator, Ryan, and we're like, Ryan, you need to come in.
7: You know, I I took a day off so that I could go look at apartments with my now wife. And I got the call, hey, we need you back at the museum right now. Uh, We can't tell you why. And I said, well, I'll come back in a little bit. I'm busy. She said, no, you need to come back right now.
4: This is Ryan Lintelman. He's the entertainment curator at the Smithsonian. He manages the Wizard of Oz exhibition, where the ruby slippers normally sit on a pedestal in the middle of a large gallery decorated with scenes from the movie, like the field of poppies. There's nothing else in the room. The curators have left plenty of space so people can crowd around the slippers. Usually it's packed, but the day we visited, the museum was closed because of COVID.
7: You know, I I love to go down when they're on display and and see people interacting with the slippers because no matter how jaded you get about whatever else might be going on in your job, the joy that people have when they get to visit them, you know, maybe after years of trying to get there or a long drive across the country. I mean, people literally make pilgrimages to see the ruby slippers. You know, I've seen people start crying. I've seen people run across the floor of the museum, usually getting security guards after them, you know, just because they want to run up and take their picture with them. It's, it's pretty incredible.
2: When Lintelman responded to Wallace's call he didn't expect to find FBI agents in her workroom, much less what they'd brought with them.
7: You know, I finally walked down to the conservation lab and was surprised to see two pairs of ruby slippers there together.
2: The Smithsonian slippers were sitting next to the pair from Minneapolis. Wallace and Lentelman were curious where the stolen slippers had been for all the years they were missing. Tossed in a closet or a drawer? Buried underground? Displayed in someone's home? they found some clues.
7: To my eye, the stolen pair looked like they had been handled carefully and cared for in the years that they had been missing, which I was really excited to see, having been worried that they might show a lot of wear. The only thing that was a little concerning is that there's some evidence that the inscriptions inside had been rubbed off, maybe in an attempt to kind of disguise them and hide their history. So I think we still have a lot to learn about the theft and what was, what was in the minds of the people who thought that maybe they could profit from this.
9: You can see they had been in a museum because there was like a layer of dirt on them and there were some condition issues. We were surprised at of the condition that they came in. So I think they were kept out of sight. I don't think they were like worn by anyone or, like, banged around or, like, clicking the heels. A lot of people want to click their heels together. So that made us very happy.
2: Wallace and Lintelman also noticed something interesting. The left shoe in one pair seemed to match the right shoe in the other, and vice versa.
9: There is a theory that the pair in the museum's collection and the pair that had been stolen were possible mismatched pairs. When we find that bead, and you start seeing all the evidence of them being the reciprocal pair, you're like, they belong together. And you just sort of, you don't know when they were last together. It would have been the 1970 MGM auction.
2: In that moment, Wallace and Lentleman became part of a small group of people who shared a secret. The stolen ruby slippers had finally been found. Up until then, the FBI agents had been stone-faced. Now they took photos of their badges next to the slippers.
7: I was talking to the FBI agents about the other things that I work on, and they seemed really interested in that. I mean, these are guys who kind of weren't expecting to get caught up in this whole world of movie memorabilia as it was, but I think it had kind of you know, gotten them, they they got the bug for it. So I said, well, if you guys want, I can take you up to our collection storage and show you around. And it didn't take a minute for them to say yes. And they saw Muhammad Ali's robe, they saw Batman's cowl and, uh, you know, Rocky's robe and boxing gloves, those sorts of things. And then this, you know, it struck me, oh, we've got Mulder and Scully's FBI badges from the X-Files. These guys would probably like to see those and their eyes lit up. And so that was the one thing they really wanted to take photos with, take back and show the guys, you know, (laughs) at the FBI.
2: The shoes' return wouldn't be secret for long. There were so many people to tell. Michael Shaw, the shoes' owner, when they were stolen. John Kelsch and John Minor of the Judy Garland Museum. And then there was everyone else. The world would want to know. This
0: episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
5: We had finally accepted the fact that the slippers were likely gone forever, that they had been destroyed. Uh, A big television crew had come in and done all this diving in the lake. There were rumors that two local kids had stolen them and that getting scared They had thrown them in a Tupperware with rocks and they were at the bottom of this mine pit that was now a lake. And it was just, you know, we were sure we would never see those slippers again and very likely they didn't even exist anymore.
4: This is Michelle Russell, who we last heard from in episode three. She wrote a biography of Judy Garland's father, in September 2018, she was married to John Kalsch, living in Grand Rapids and working at the Judy Garland Museum.
5: And we got a call from NBC. I said, what is this about? Oh, we just want to tell a, kind of a history about the ruby slippers. The next day, my husband's getting these texts on his phone. They're back. I'm like, this is some kind of, what's back? Finally, one of the board members sent him a message. This is, I'm like, what? (laughs) What? And they said, yes, it's true, it's true. The FBI has found them at one o'clock. There's gonna be a press conference. So finally I went down to the museum and it was mayhem. There were people coming in. I think they thought the slippers were going to be there. The phones were ringing off the hook. I started taking phone calls. The front desk was crazy. They were arranging press conferences, an interview with France, an interview with England, an interview with CNN, then saying, well, we're all booked up. You'll have to call tomorrow. (laughs) And the town itself was jubilant grand rapids that's all everybody was talking about they found the slippers can you believe it you know and people were honking their horns even when they were driving by so finally we put up a big sign on our signboard. thank you to the police it was amazing was absolutely amazing we're here today to share with you the recovery of
2: one of the most significant and cherished pieces of movie memorabilia
5: in American history.
4: The FBI had a huge press conference in Minneapolis announcing that the slippers had been found.
5: This is a significant milestone, and we wanted to share that today.
0: Now, under the rainbow.
4: The bureau invited the police from Grand Rapids, who worked the case.
7: Yeah, if we could kind of maintain a decent distance. Again, you'll all have your chance uh, to grab the photos.
4: But the pageantry didn't sit well with everyone. Some people thought the FBI was taking too much credit.
3: Finally, tonight, it wasn't the wizard, but an FBI sting that turned up perhaps the most famous slippers. At a news
6: conference, the FBI revealed how they were recovered.
2: We received a new tip and some information that we diligently pursued. Lots of interviews, several searches. Here's
4: Bob Stein.
6: I was angry personally. I was angry because I do not give any one person credit for the slippers, you know. Without the FBI, we wouldn't have recovered them, and I'll give them that, and they worked, the agents on the ground worked hard, and Agent Dudley worked extremely hard for us. For them to come out and say they diligently went after these slippers like they've been doing it for years, I was so disappointed, I was shaking my head.
5: Not only were these slippers stolen, but the memories of a lot of Americans were stolen back in 2005, and we hope today that we give those memories back.
6: Well, congratulations, you got yourself a win and you made Grand Rapids look terrible.
4: For Kelsch, who was the director of the Judy Garland Museum when the slippers were stolen, it was like a weight had been lifted. He watched the press conference on TV, then went to his local Lions Club a few days later to celebrate.
3: Oh, just great relief. It was just so unexpected. I was so happy that they weren't destroyed, because that really would have been a shame.
5: People were just slapping him on the back and saying, Congratulations.
2: Michael Shaw said he first found out the slippers were back when he was filming a follow up segment for Expedition Unknown, the Travel Channel show that had produced an episode in Grand Rapids earlier that year. Joe Maddalena, the memorabilia expert starring in the show, told Shaw the news while cameras were rolling.
3: I'm sitting here in my living room and he tells me, Michael, we got him. Oh, God bless you. They've been found. They've been found. <laughs> I was overjoyed. I mean, what do you think? After all these years, I find out that not only are they safe, but they're in they're in the good hands of the FBI. Honey, I felt vindicated when the insurance company said Mr. Shaw had nothing to do with it. And then the FBI put an added stamp on top of that saying this man had his property stolen. He was the one that was violated, and he had nothing to do with the theft.
2: But there were still so many unanswered questions. The press conference was jubilant, but cryptic. There had been no arrests made in connection with the case. In fact, the way the FBI talked about it, this wasn't the end. Agents were just getting started.
9: The FBI says the theft was part of an extortion scheme against the company who owns the slippers.
7: But who stole them is still unknown. Authorities did
6: not reveal who they believe is responsible for the theft. Well, when the word got out, they're elated, absolutely happy. But then the question is, who had them? Where were they? You know, who's going to keep them?
9: The investigation continues, and the U.S. attorney said it remains to be seen if charges will be filed.
5: We were all very, very curious. And there were a lot of whispers of different things.
6: This is an ongoing investigation, so we won't talk about the facts. And we will follow those facts where they lead and draw up charges as appropriate and if appropriate.
5: We had some kind of party for the people that work at the museum, and the detective involved in the case was invited as well. And we were able to sit down at a table with him and kind of have a private conversation. He he said there were things he still couldn't tell. But I learned enough about it to say, okay, I understand why we can't talk about this. One of the little tidbits I've heard is that this case involves a very well-known person. Here's
4: John Minor, the founder of the Judy Garland Museum, who also talked to law enforcement about the case. He said there were several people involved in the theft and in keeping the slippers hidden for years.
0: They got the slippers and then they changed hands four or five times. And nobody, nobody wants to talk. They aren't good people. And uh, some of them you'd be uh, quite surprised at because uh, some people think they, they are good people, but, but we know they aren't because they were involved. So that's, uh, that's the ruby slipper caper.
2: Who is Miner talking about? Who is the supposedly well-known person connected to the case? What about Florida Man? And the lawyer? And what about the dead guy the lawyer named after the sting, who he said was the original thief? To find answers, we'll have to leap into new territory and do our own sleuthing. The FBI investigation is ongoing, and the Bureau is tight-lipped. But as we created this podcast, we were able to piece together clues. We've uncovered the names of people who were key players. And we have a good idea of what likely happened to the ruby slippers. It all starts in a peculiar slice of the Minneapolis underworld, a community of master thieves. next time on no place like home
0: and here's the the big payoff we're going to show you the ruby slippers and i thought actually so what
7: it is easier to steal this art than it is necessarily to sell it
0: don't worry these aren't the stolen ones these are another pair that has happened to come onto the market
3: most of the time the criminal is never caught and and you know it's my role to get the artwork back and
6: he's like i heard that name before
0: he was a, a custom thief you might say
6: But personally, I still believe that uh, fact is going to be stranger than fiction. What we love is to tell stories. And um, I can't wait for this one to be told when it's
7: all said and done.
2: No Place Like Home is a presentation, direction, and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in partnership with The Atavist magazine. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran. Written by Ariel Ramshandani. Narrated by Ariel Ramchandani and me, Sayward Darby. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Produced by Paige Heimson and Valerie Thomas. Engineering, research, and production support by Adam Prashibo, Bill Schultz, Ian Mont, Bob Tabador, Patrick Antonetti, and Sean Cherry. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schuff, Melissa Wester, and Meredith Tiger. Series artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Season one of No Place Like Home is based on reporting by Ariel Ramchandani for The Atavist magazine. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.
5: I'm
8: Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's Fashion and Beauty Memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People